thank you for listening to this Calvary Aurora Bible study with Pastor Ed Taylor. We pray as you study through God's Word that you're blessed by God's abounding grace. You take your Bibles and open them to John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, we're given this one verse surrounded by so many. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says in verse 30, John 19, he says, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Can you remember a time in your life of great pain? I mean, of course we can think of times of great physical pain, a broken arm, a broken leg, a car accident. There are other types of pain that we experience on earth today, the pain of rejection, the pain of betrayal, the pain of abandonment, even deeper pains like grief or times of pain upon pain as they begin to add up in our lives. Good Friday is known as God's most painful moment, the most painful moment that Jesus ever experienced in his life on the earth. And we know from the scriptures that Jesus hung on an old wooden Roman cross. He endured one of the most horrific things that a man can face. The usual instrument of scourging before he was even put on the cross was a short whip with several single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths. And in the leather strips were small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bones that were tied at different intervals. And the man that was going to be scourged He would be stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied to an upright post and the back and the buttocks and the legs were flogged. Scourging was in the beating. We often refer to that as a beating. Uh, You would use scourging to weaken the victim to a state of just short of collapsing or just short of dying. And as the Roman soldiers, one on either side with both hands, would flail on a person's back, with full force, the little iron balls and the sheep, the sheep bones would cause these deep contusions and rip away the skin and take away the subcutaneous tissues under the skin. And as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles. And it was during scourging that often a victim uh, would just, just admit to whatever he wanted to admit to, what they wanted him to admit to so that they would end and it would be over. Often there were two scourgers, one on either side of the victim who took turns. And muscles were lacerated, veins and arteries were torn open. And it wasn't uncommon for the kidneys or the spleen of a person or the organs to be exposed and slashed. Almost always, under this type of beating, the man would die, not ever having to face the cross, not ever having to endure the additional torture of hanging on a Roman cross. Yet Jesus endures the scourging to the end, which then he would take up the cross. They would take him off that upward beam and then they would give him the cross beam to carry. And he would have that load on this beat up, bloodied body. To then be crucified. Crucifixion was invented by man, by the Persians. They believed that the earth was sacred 
And it was criminal. It was criminal and it was, it was wrong. They believed the earth was sacred. And so the criminal was lifted up off of the earth so that his death wouldn't defile the earth. That was in their thinking. One Jewish writer says, crucifixion was the most terrible and cruel death that a man has ever devised for taking vengeance on his fellow man. Cicero called it the most cruel and most horrible torture. The Roman Tacitus called it a torture only fit for slaves. Now, the Persians invented it, but the Romans perfected it. And according to history, the Romans used crucifixion with an upright beam, an upright beam and one crossbar where the man would be hands wide open and his feet would be on a standing stick. The Romans would perfect it and use it more than anyone else. Just for the history that we know of with the Jewish people, that the Romans used it to kill some 30,000 Jews by crucifixion. And every time you would see someone crucified, they would do it publicly, often in groups of people, on the side of a busy road, so that while, you know, we kind of think about the crucifixion because of the way things are depicted, and like one of the pictures during worship, we kind of think of it on a faraway hill uh, where you have to look on, you kind of gaze on it and maybe walk up a few minutes to get there. That's not how crucifixion was done. It was done on the road, or what we would think of today on the sidewalk, right next to the sidewalk. So everybody that would be walking through commerce and business, everyone that would be going about their regular day, would see and hear and watch a man crucified. And, and the Romans were not only punishing what they believed to be a criminal, but they were also sending a message with every crucifixion. And the message was very simple. Don't mess with Rome. Don't even think about it. And Rome, the government kept crucifixion exclusively for who they labeled as rebels, runaway slaves, and the lowest type of criminal. It was so cruel of a, of a way to die in a punishment that the Roman government refused to crucify Roman citizens. They would take care of that a different way. So crucifixion would have involved laying Jesus on, an open, with his, on his open lacerated bleeding back on a huge, large, splintery cross. The soldiers would take spikes five to seven inches long and hammer them between the two arm bones at the wrist, thereby crushing his median nerve. The pain, it says, was absolutely unbearable. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. Because it was literally beyond words to describe, they invented a new name to describe the pain of someone that was being crucified. And we often will use that word today in our own English language. They would refer to that pain as excruciating. And that word was to use to describe the kind of pain, not as we had mentioned earlier, of a broken bone or maybe some deep emotional pain that we carry, but rather to describe the pain of crucifixion. Literally, excruciating means out of the cross. They created a new word because there was just nothing in the language to describe the intense anguish caused during crucifixion. At this point, 
As Jesus was hoisted on the crossbar, was attached to the vertical stake, nails were driven through Jesus' feet. Again, the nerves in his feet would have been crushed. Crushed and severed nerves were certainly bad enough, but his arms would have been immediately stretched, probably about six inches in length. Both shoulders would have been dislocated. And this fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy, as we read in Psalm 22, that would foretold of the crucifixion hundreds of years before it took place. The Bible speaks of crucifixion even before it was invented. As God would know how from the very beginning of time, before time began, how he would provide for us the way out of our own sin and shame and guilt. It's an understatement. It's hard to grasp words to describe the pain that Jesus went through. Just saying it again, the most torturous, painful way for a person to die is what Jesus went through for us. As his life was exchanged for my life and yours. His perfect sinless offering provided the way of escape for us. This is what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Jesus suffered in silence throughout all his hours of inter- interrogation and torture and agony. Isaiah the prophet would write hundreds of years earlier, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet when the weight of humanity's sin was poured upon him, Jesus cries out according to Matthew. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words are shocking to us. And every year they bring up questions. What, what exactly is happening? What is Jesus feeling or experiencing? What does it mean to be forsaken? The word literally means from the original language to be deserted or abandoned or even rejected. And the full weight of Jesus taking upon the sins of all humanity caused him to cry out once again in fulfillment of what God predicted thousands of years earlier. Why have you forsaken me? And I believe the words that are used here disarm, are used to disarm us and cause us to wonder what does he mean? Because it's hard for us to even fathom what's taking place here. I think you could say on Good Friday, uh, as we are at any time during our Bible study time, but you know, you would think of this particular moment that we're on holy ground as we examine and in our minds attempt to picture ourselves there uh, watching Jesus, the innocent man, God in human flesh, die the most horrific death. He, he was beaten, you know, coming back to putting it together, the Bible speaks of him being so beaten that his, his face was so marred. In the old King James, it says his visage was so marred that he was unrecognizable if you didn't know who he was. The words impact our lives so significantly it bears looking into. For if we can get a better understanding of what Jesus actually went through for us, what incredible pain he experienced gives us a greater appreciation of, of the price that was paid on Calvary. It's not, you know, the cross is no longer just a necklace or something on a picture or as we had, we used to have here, uh, we had an emblem of the cross on the stage for a while and, and it's not just a picture or a logo. It's the place where our, the price of our sins have been paid. These were not the delusions of a man in great pain. 
When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His faith is not failing him. I believe as Jesus was hanging there at this very moment, he was bearing the sins of the world, dying as a substitute for you and for me. Even more so, let's personalize it. He was bearing your sin at that very moment. Your sin. The weight of your rebellion. The weight of your separation. For it's with sin, falling short of the perfection of God, sin always is first and foremost against a holy and righteous God. Not merely between us, although that does tend to get a lot of attention when I may sin against you or you sin against me and we've got to work it out by the blood of Jesus Christ. that's That's not the emphasis that the Bible teaches us. The emphasis that we learn is that our sin is first and foremost, and you could even say solely against a holy and a righteous God, and then the consequences work out between us. And it was in that time he was bearing your sin and mine. To him was imputed or given the guilt of all our sins, and he was suffering the necessary punishment for sins on our behalf. And the essence of that punishment was the outpouring of God's wrath against sinners in some mysterious way that we will never fully understand during these awful hours on the cross, the Father was pouring out the full measure of his wrath against sin. And the recipient of that wrath was God's own beloved Son, which is startling to us. Because in another place we learn that God teaches us and even in our worst condition and even all, all, of our, all of the sins that are representing in this room right now, represented by those connected by way of media right now, just sins we know about, sins we don't know about, they would stack to the roof and they'd probably push the roof off. Roof off. And, and we, the Bible says, have not been appointed to wrath. Every believer... Now, we we look at that passage and we go, oh, yes, because the wrath of God is going to be poured out once again in the seven-year tribulation period. And so knowing that we haven't been appointed to wrath is, is very encouraging to us that we believe that the church will be raptured out of this world before the wrath of God is once again poured on. But that's not even the significance of that. That is simply something that comes out of this beautiful thing. Here's the, here's the essence of not being appointed to wrath. The reason you and I are not appointed to wrath is because Jesus Christ took the wrath of God upon himself for you. That's the greatest benefit. The greatest benefit for you and for me is that Jesus took your, the, the wrath of God for your sins and mine upon himself. God was punishing Jesus as if he had personally committed every wicked deed committed by every wicked sinner within the sound of my voice. And in so doing, he could treat us and forgive us that come to him by faith that are redeemed or purchased back by the precious blood that was shed on that cross. And we know this event happened. And we have eyewitnesses of this event. We have the scriptures that have stayed with us for thousands of years, not only speaking before the event happened, predicting it, but also verify, giving us an eyewitness account of it happening and then after the cross, letting us allow now look back to verify that this happened. And at that very moment, not only is Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? But he's also, he, he also says on the cross, it's finished. The grace of God is established, it's finished. 
you're saved and I'm saved and I'm in right relationship with God, not because of anything that we've ever done, any good work, any good thought. We're not reconciled to God because we raised our hand or we stood at an altar or we prayed some sinner's prayer. We are made right with God by the blood of Jesus Christ, by faith, by grace through faith. He has done the work and it's finished. It's not ongoing. When you are saved, it's a whole package. You are saved from your past sins. You are saved from your present sins. And you are saved for even your future sins. Now in our carnal, twisted nature, we think, if we're not careful, we may think that, well, if it's a whole package and Jesus has paid the price for my sins, past, present, and future, then does that somehow give me permission to live a life that if Jesus has already paid for them, then I can just live a life of sin and take my chances at the end because he's already done that. And, and that's just the twistedness of our thinking. The work of the Holy Spirit and God's presence in you would not lead you to such thoughts. The, the work of the Holy Spirit in you would lead you to thoughts of how can I please my Father? How can I express my appreciation? How can I yield my life that was cro- crooked and twisted before that now I'm redeemed, now God, what would you want to do in my life? And what do you want to do in my life? And we think of Good Friday, and the question is always asked around this time, why would we even call it good? From all estimations, we would assume and make the conclusion that it was a bad day. Because we always associate pain and difficulty with bad, and healing and strength with good. But as we'll learn uh, in our coming services here, God, he can take the bad and redeem it into good. With God, he's always working things together for the good, mixing them together, developing in us a deeper faith, reminding us of his love, refining us, maybe even chastening or, or disciplining us through the pain of life. And then this is an example of the pain that Jesus bore. His pain turns out to be the greatest good in your life and in mine. Sin always produces separation for believers and unbelievers alike. Sin separates friends from friends. Sin separates parents from kids. Sin separates families. Sin brings separation in society and mankind even from God. The Bible says that God can't even look upon sin. The Bible describes God as being of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look at wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? And Jesus on the cross was forsaken by God so that you and I would never have to be. So that you and I could hold on to the promise in Hebrews chapter 13 when Jesus says to every believer by faith, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So as we leave here today, Consider the price that was paid for you and for me. You know, we use the word redeemed. It's an accounting term. You know, there's a lot of Bible words as we use them. We we may not realize that people don't understand what the word means. If we we start sharing the gospel with someone and telling them, we were redeemed by the blood of the lamb. They're going to ask you, do you live on, you know, Bennett? Like, what are you talking about? I don't have lambs here and blood. And what are you talking about? Redeemed is, comes to us from the accounting realm. It means to buy back, to purchase. We redeem something. We even use that word today. You might be given a coupon. And in order to use that coupon, they'll say that it needs to be redeemed. 
It, it needs to be exchanged. You give the coupon and you get the benefit of whatever that coupon is. And so when the Bible uses the word redeemed for us, it is really describing for us that we enjoy the benefit. We enjoy the benefit of the finished work of Jesus Christ that gives meaning and purpose to every single situation in your life, good or bad, happy or sad, easy or hard. It gives purpose and meaning. Not only does it give purpose and meaning, but it also, it gives us context. Context. We need context in a world like ours that's touched and tainted by sin. We need context when we're going through it and we're hurting and when we're experiencing pain. When we might be even crying out. There's somebody listening right now that has cried out themselves, why have you forsaken me, God? Because that's how you feel. And Jesus gives you context. He understands. He knows the feeling. Even though, even though there's that feeling and that wrestling and maybe God has allowed a situation or sent a situation your way to get your attention, to draw you closer to him. And I know you would be feeling the very similar thought. Well, what, couldn't he have sent or allowed something else? And the answer to that is yes, he could have, but he didn't. He's allowed this situation at this time in order to get your eyes back on the Lord, in order to create a desperation in you in prayer and urgency, in order, to, in order to grab your attention and say, there is more to this world than what you can see with your eyes or feel with your feelings. Paul would put it this way. He would speak of not looking to the temporary in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're not going to look to the temporary, but we're going to choose to look to the eternal, even as we live in the temporary. That which doesn't last will be swallowed up with life as the resurrection is just up ahead. So consider this. People watching Jesus right now, the people viewing the cross with their own eyes, the people hearing about it throughout Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, at this point where we are on Good Friday, on the day of crucifixion, they don't know that three days Jesus is going to rise again. It's coming. They don't know. Even though Jesus taught them and repeated it over and over again, they don't know. They don't know, so they're living with the weight of, and, and that's why I try to keep, uh, and I really want to keep Good Friday at a heavy level because I want you to feel a little bit of how the disciples and how the followers of Jesus felt, what it was like for them just to go back to work and say, okay, I guess, I guess this is the end. We had a good three-year run, but this is the end, and all our hopes and dreams died right there and then was taken down off that cross and buried and sealed in a tomb with Roman soldiers guarding it day and night. That's it. Our dreams have died. They've died on the cross. They've died in the tomb. But three days later, they'll experience the resurrection power of Jesus. And even then, it's going to take some time for them to process it, to come to the reality. And I just believe the Lord wants you to know that he's going to be patient with you. We sing a song here at Calvary talking about how kind God is and how patient he is. It's true. And he'll be patient with you as you consider the reality of what Jesus has done in your life, and as you process the hurt and the pain or the difficulty that you're currently in, and maybe even have been for such a long time, 
God is kind, he's patient, he's gentle, he's faithful. And, and of anything that we will find out as we celebrate the resurrection is that he keeps his promises and he's reliable. But we leave him there, taken down off the cross, put into a tomb and buried and sealed. And then we walk out the doors in just a few minutes back to our regular life, back to the office, maybe to lunch, maybe a phone call. And that's where Jesus really lives out the best in normal everyday life. And it's good to be reminded of the weight of what's happened. It's, it's not just joining a church, isn't it? It's not just showing up and signing a pledge card or becoming a member of some church. Like the essence of the church is the death, burial, and the resurrection. I mean, that is where it's at. Jesus died for you so that you might be brought into a right relationship with him. So God, we leave the cross today, we leave the tomb today, and consider, as best that we can, the weight of the exchange. And we consider that the exchange could never be done by us, ever, never. We could never pay the price for someone else's sin. We could never earn your favor. We could never cons be considered in the driver's seat of life. And as we leave, we ask for your spirit to go before us to, and again, I mean, I, I know, I know that life is hard and difficult at times, but the context is that Jesus, you've gone before us. Our savior has been tempted in all ways except without sin. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you've never even considered, you, you've seen pictures of Jesus on the cross, maybe in a church you were raised in, they have it as a big decoration and Jesus is hanging there on the cross. I think they call that a crucifix. I have the privilege of declaring you to, to you today that Jesus is no longer hanging on the cross. He's no longer paying the price for sins. When he declares it is finished, it is finished. And through repentance, as you turn your life away from sin and turn your life toward God today, you too can be saved. The cross is empty. And so is the, gra the grave that Jesus was laid in, empty. He's alive today. And so in the own meditation of your heart between you and God, you can just ask God to forgive you of your sins. You might even be a believer. I've had a couple emails this week of believers that have just been going off the rails in their life. They're not praying with their spouse. They're out getting drunk and they're doing crazy things. They're getting in trouble with the law again. And, and maybe you are here today and, and you're off the rails and it's time to get back into a place of relationship. Get back on the rails, if you will. Keep making progress in your relationship with the Lord because the coming of Jesus Christ is at hand. The cross reminds us of the grave, reminds us of the ascension as Jesus ascended into heaven, the resurrection, the ascension, and the ascension reminds us of the return, the promise to return. Jesus is going to return. He's going to first return for his church, and then he's going to return, and he is going to put his foot down on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split in half, and he's going to walk down and go right through the eastern gate into Jerusalem and be crowned king of kings and rule and reign for a thousand years and usher in his kingdom, and we will rule and reign with him. And yet we have the power of God living in us right now. 
with a desire to reach the lost. So in this quiet time, and as Pastor Jason and the team lead us in the last song as you leave here, just pray. And, and you can pray out loud. You can pray silently. You can, you can use the, the stage here as an altar if you want to come up and kneel before God today and thank him. You can thank him out loud. You can shout it out if you would like. You can express yourself of the death and the beating of Jesus in your life because he loves you and he cares for you. And if this is the day that you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, then stick around just a little bit after the service. The pastors will be up here to serve you and to teach you and ask, answer questions for you of what it means to follow him. So let's just, let's just bow our heads. We'll start worshiping with our heads bowed. And then as the Lord leads you, you can stand, you can sit, you can just, just, let's just start this time of song in a reverential bowing of our heads. We pray that you've been touched by this study from Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call area code 303-628-7200. Be blessed this week in the Lord.